Good afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for April 30th, 2022. And you've been listening to our intro music, Leonard Cohen's Democracy, which pretty much sums up what we're going to talk about for the next two hours. And this is KFGM 105.5 Low Power FM, Missoula Community Radio, Live streaming on 1055kfgm.org. It's four characters in a row, no punctuation. And now on podcast on Anchor, 
anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio Buying for the 99%. And I'm Jim Galan, the sound man, and I'm thrilled to be joined to this afternoon by Jim Liska and Mark Anderlich, and significantly, you will learn from the topic we're covering that Mark is a South Bend guy. The other Jim is also a Chicago guy. So when the topic is labor history in the Great Lakes area and Lake Michigan, we got you covered. <laughs> hey, so, Jim and Jim. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of redundant, isn't it? But <laughs> <laughs> So we broadcast from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral home of the Salish and Kootenai people. But we are recording this show from the comfort and safety of our own homes, which also are located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. And Jim, uh, what, uh, what native peoples live where you live? Well, I live in Livingston, Montana, and we're Cree. Cree? Oh, no kidding. Okay, fewer syllables than what we have here. <laughs> well, and despite <clears throat> all of our deepest wishes, the pandemic is not quite over yet. We need to hang in there still by doing our part by wearing masks when you are inside in public, by frequent washing of your hands, and by getting vaccinated. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall, which actually is moving out to the Missoula Public Library, the new Missoula Public Library this weekend. So oh, we're going we're gonna to have wow. to not talk about the historic Union Hall anymore. Yeah. And, and an Jim increase and in Mark, frequency. I misspoke living so the crow oh not cree <laughs> okay good yeah aren't cree in the linda um uh, gillison area no, they're they're Southeast. north there's oh they are there's um yes there's cree in montana but on in the northern part of the state and oh okay further north in, into canada too um so um we need anyway, more Native Americans as guests on this show. Mark. We do. We do. <laughs> Straighten us out. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we hope you enjoy the show as we enjoy learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And uh, we want to give old Mick a shout out as he has, he actually moved into a new place. So uh, Mick, hmm. we hope you're doing well in your new place in Missouri. Yeah. And we welcome you back to your old place, sitting where I am and doing a terrific job. So, Godspeed to you, Mick. So it's the word of the week time. And not surprising, it's May Day for the day before May Day. This, of course, is May 1st and traditionally called May Day. And Mark... Why is this significant? Well, um, Jim, I'm glad you asked. Um, 
It, it has been celebrated for centuries as a festival for one. More recently, it has become International Workers' Day celebrated around the world. So this day has some long roots. What do we know about the origins of May Day? Well, um, it certainly started at a time when people were far more connected to the seasons and to the earth and did not live in an economy that demanded 40 hours of work a week, 50 weeks out of the year to survive. Um, people throughout history until rather recently had lots of time to enjoy life and to improve their own arts, as it were. Hmm, that's, uh, <laughs> that's unfortunate. Yeah, and there's reasons for that, but uh, mm -hmm. it is unfortunate. And, um, and so uh, uh, we like to quote from Wikipedia and our fearless leader, JVD, has uh, uh, encouraged us to provide a little disclaimer each time we bring up Wikipedia, and that's what this is, uh, that uh, uh, every entry in Wikipedia is written by uh, uh, individuals and um, who are more or less reliable. And, um, <laughs> and so therefore, uh, use caution when using Wikipedia, which we do. Um, however, um, what our collective wisdom at Wikipedia has to say uh, about May Day is that the earliest known May celebrations appeared with the Floralia, Festival of Flora, the Roman goddess of flowers. Go figure. Held, held from yeah. oh, April 27th. Yeah, so there's Flora right there. Right. <laughs> and the dog <laughs> wants to say, gee, back in the day, they had a whole week. And now in the industrial age, it's this, you live in a dog's life and it, it's just, <laughs> you have to fit it into a 40-hour work week. That's right. It's just one day. Um, yeah, and you're right. It was uh, held for a week um, this time uh, of the year during the Roman Republic era. And the Mayuma or Mayuma, um, I'm not sure what the difference there is, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, a festival celebrating Dionysus and Aphrodite held every three years during the month of May. Mm, I know who they are. <laughs> Any art history student does. <laughs> That's right. Um, the Floralia opened with theatrical performances. Uh, in it, Ovid says that hares and goats were released as part of the festivities. Perseus writes that crowds were pelted with vetches, beans, and lupins. All right. So, you know, it, they, they weren't hurt by that, um, obviously. Right. Um, so flowers, flowers and beans were thrown at them, basically. Um, a ritual called the Flora Fertum, ooh, that's, I think that's very suggestive, was performed, <laughs> was performed on either April 27th or May 3rd, during which a bundle of wheat ears was carried into a shrine, though it is not clear if this devotion was made to Flora or Ceres. Um, the god of cereals, right? Um, hmm. Flor Floralia. That I didn't know. Would uh, that include barley malt too? It it would, yes. Ooh, okay. And there's a there's a uh, th th this this is an unsolicited uh, plug, but there's a <laughs> bakery in Kalispell called the Series C E R E S Bakery. So hmm. 
Um, <clears throat> Floralia concluded with competitive events and spectacles and a sacrifice to flora. Mayuma was celebrated at least as early as the second century AD when records show expenses for the month long festival. So, so we, this was a month, not just a week. Um, those were the days. Those were the days. Um, were appropriated by Emperor Commodus. Com, uh, Commodus, that's, that's how you say it. Yeah. According to the sixth century chronicles of John Malalas, the Mayuma was a nocturnal dramatic festival held every three years and known as orgies. That is the mysteries of Dionysus and Aphrodite. Oh yeah. And, and that it was known as the Mayomas <laughs> because it was celebrated in the month of May, Artemis, Artemisios. Boy, we, we need Linda on here. The classic. We sure do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we should have her on on retainer. On, yes, uh, to to at least pronounce these words right. Um, <laughs> during during this time, enough money was set aside by the government for torches, lights, and other expenses to cover a thirty day festival of all night revels. The Myoma was celebrated with splendorous banquets and offerings. Its reputation for licentiousness caused it to be suppressed during the reign of Emperor Constantine, though a less debauched version of it was briefly restored during the reign, reigns of Arcadius and Honor, Honorius, only to be suppressed again during the same period, end quote. Who's lucky to be at the last orgy before Emperor Constantine. Oh, you said you were? It and wonderful. <laughs> wow. Yeah, mm. and, and, and how long did that go on for? Oh, I, I forget. I passed <laughs> out in the third day. So you, so you were there. <laughs> right, <Yes>. right, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's, the, Constantine kind of threw a bucket of cold water on all this licentious. Yeah, he sure did. Thank God yeah, for we, Mardi Gras and the, we you really know, the didn't like arc him. was turning the other way. <laughs> Well, and, and he also made Christianity the state religion of, of yeah, the empire. Yeah, I know. He, so rules, there, rules, rules. There's a connection there, right? Yeah. Well, um, so Constantine was certainly the first emperor to stop the persecution of Christians and to legalize Christianity along with all other religions, cults in the Roman Empire. He's interesting also in that for centuries, the only accounts of Constantine were the official accounts that praised him as the best. <laughs> oh, they, they had almost destroyed all other accounts and it probably weren't so glowing as uh, the mm. ones that survived. But some <laughs> of those, but some of those accounts that survived were, were found rather recently and perhaps give a more balance to the official propaganda uh, from Constantine. Wikipedia says that scholars still debate the true nature of Constantine, but apparently they all agree he threw cold water on the orgies okay nothing puts a damper on an orgy like cold water yeah, indeed right. i've heard that yeah <laughs> i think it was in my eighth grade health class <laughs> and you went to take a cold shower and prove prove the point right um uh, well i'm planning on it now that i'm 70 you know i <laughs> Uh, well, in the Roman Empire hinterlands, May Day traditions thrived separate from the Roman origins. 
Here's Wikipedia again. A later May festival celebrated in Germanic countries while Purgis night commemorates the official canonization of St. Walpurga. On May 1st, 870, 870, I guess is mm -hmm. how you would say that. In Gaelic culture, the evening of April 30th was a celebration of Beltane, which translates to lucky fire. And that mm -hmm. is the start of the summer season. First attested in 900 AD, the celebration mainly focused on the symbolic uses of fire to bless cattle and other livestock as they were moved to summer pastures. This custom, yeah. this custom continued to the early 19th century, during which time cattle would be made to jump over fires to protect their milk from being stolen by fairies. People would also and, leap over the wow. fires for luck. In and so began pasteurization. <laughs> <laughs> Even the dog thought that was funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's funny. Um, so, um, well, and here's a way. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Um, I guess that you didn't want to fall into the fire as you were celebrating. So no, that's, that would not be mm -hmm. good. I, that would probably bring you the bad luck for the rest of the year. I meant, yeah. And, and, and burns to, uh, right. Right. And, um, an, and an Arthur Brown one hit wonder. Arthur Brown. Okay. Yes. Uh, um, so here's a Wikipedia entry on May Day that you can remark on, Jim. Okay. okay. Since, since the, uh, and this is in your wheelhouse. Um, yeah, mackerel since, snapper on staff. That's it. Um, since the 18th century, many Roman Catholics have observed May and May Day with various May devotions to the Blessed Virgin Mary in works of art, school skits, and so forth. Mary's head will often be adorned with flowers and a May oh. crowning. May 1st is also one of the two feast days of the Catholic patron saint of workers, St. Joseph the Worker, a carpenter, husband to Mother mm -hmm. Mary, and surrogate father of Jesus. Replacing another feast to St. Joseph, this date was chosen by Pope Pius XII in 1955 as a counterpoint to the communist, quote, right. communist International Workers' Day celebrations on May Day. And I'm so glad that you added that. Because there's, um, I, I didn't want to speak officially because there, that's it's very controversial still in the church, and with many with many people with May, undecided with May about which story. Yeah, that um, the the whole uh, you know inventing a, a new role for um, you know Joseph. And, you know, and, uh, you know, re rewriting this and doing a page one rewrite on what he was famous for and mm. why he is observed and admired. Kind of tacky. So he so he was he was fighting communists back in the day, right? Yeah, he sure. Yeah, I guess. So. Well, that's that's the magisterium of the 2000 year old church. I see. It's a big tent and lots of good stories <laughs> and, they, and they all don't agree with each other. Yes. Well, it's, it's all in the interpretation, right? <laughs> we were yeah. selling some, my wife and I were selling some property in Los Angeles at where we lived at the time. And she said, well, why don't you go to the, well, there was a religious factory or store 
somewhere in Canoga Park, should go there and buy a statue of St. Joseph. We'll bury him in the backyard and it'll increase our opportunity or our possibility of selling the house. And being a Jew, I just walked into the store. I said, I need a statue of St. Joseph. And the guy said, oh, right over here, it's $8 or something. And I said, who is he anyway? And he looked at me like, like I had just unzipped my fly. <laughs> no. He said he's Jesus you too. Yeah. He said he's Jesus's father. And I went, who knew? <laughs> right, right, right. I know. I, I bought the statue. We buried it in the backyard, and the house sold. Well, if it's any consolation, believer. Yeah. That, that, I'm that. sorry, Jim. Well, um, if it's any consolation to you, um, Joseph was a union carpenter and a Jew. Yes. So there's, so there's a point of tangency there yeah. with your traditions. Well, and, and so continuing on with Wikipedia here, May Day was also celebrated by some early European settlers of the American continent. In some parts of the United States, May baskets are made. These are small baskets usually filled with flowers or treats and left at someone's doorstep. The giver rings the bell and runs away. Sort of the um, opposite of Halloween. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes when I was growing up, we'd leave stuff on the doorstep and ring the bell, but it wasn't an Easter basket. So. Right, right. I know. It was fertilizer. Did you, yeah, did you used to set that <laughs> on fire? Make those Easter <laughs> yeah. Everybody grow. knows that, right? Yeah. Uh, well. What they do in Indiana for fun. Yeah, well, I didn't grow up in Indiana, so, but. Oh, close okay. enough. Minnesota is where I grew up. Okay. Um, but I did live 10 years in South. See, how long have I been doing this show? And I don't know the bio. Okay. <laughs> I, I did live 10 years in South Bend, though. So I'll let okay. that go. Okay. I'll let that go. Um, modern May Day ceremonies in the U.S. vary greatly from region to region. And many unite both the holidays green root, the pagan side, and red root, the labor side uh, traditions. May Day celebrations were common at women's colleges and academic institutions in the late 19th and early, early 20th century, a tradition that continues at Bryn Mawr College and Bruno University to this day. In Minneapolis, now that's my old stomping ground, okay. um, the May Day Parade and Festival is presented annually by In the Heart of the Beast Puppet and Mask Theater on the first Sunday in May and draws around 50,000 people to Powderhorn Park. Um, on May 1st itself, local Morris dance sides converge on an overlook of the Mississippi River at dawn and then spend the remainder of the day dancing around the metro area. That's a lot of dancing. Um, yeah. In Hawaii, May Day is also known as Lei Day, and it is normally set aside as a day to celebrate island culture in general and the culture of the native Hawaiians in particular. Invented by poet and local newspaper columnist, Don Blanding, the first Lay Day was celebrated on May 1st, 1927 in Honolulu. Leonard Red and Ruth Hawk composed May Day is Lay Day in Hawaii, the traditional holiday song. So, so where did International Workers' Day come from a celebration that started with um, orgies, celebration of nature, and fire jumping? Seems well, like a stretch. Yeah, well, and that's a long story. Um, <clears throat> to begin with, 
It has deep roots in the U.S. labor struggle for the eight-hour working day. Lots of people don't realize that that <clears throat> the International Workers' Day really got started here in the United States and, mm -hmm. and kind of left as a big holiday for reasons we'll get into later. <laughs> um, yeah, right. But the, the first calls by workers for an eight-hour workday were in 1836. And people got to remember, oh my God. Uh, it's only fairly recently that the eight-hour workday is commonplace, right? Um, people used to work 10, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, mm -hmm. uh, commonly. Um, and uh, so yeah. it, it, in 1836, you had uh, volunteers from other continents that routinely work like that. Yeah, that's their right. whole lives, such Vol as they were. Volunteers, quote unquote, right. Um, the first calls by workers for an eight-hour workday were in 1836, as you said. This was not realized for most workers until after a century, 100 years of struggle, culminating in the Fair Labor Standards Act passed in 1937, mm. which enforces the standard of eight hours a day, five days a week, or 40 hours a week, by punishing employers to pay time and a half for all work done over 40 hours. And that's actually really how people... Uh, is how the law is set up. It's a punishment to employers. It's not a reward for workers. Oh. Although the workers get the time and a half, it's it's to uh, it's a way for uh, uh, you know for I the see. law to enforce employers to keep it in forty hours a week. And um, that's how it was presented when the legislation was uh, drawn up and voted on. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. That's fascinating. And even then, so even then. Um, there were some fields like there, even to this day, there are some uh, like if you're a domestic servant, right? Like in a mm -hmm. rich household, or if you're a farm worker, these laws don't apply to you. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and they didn't apply to people that worked in restaurants and hotels mm -hmm. until after World War II. Um, during, no kidding. All the way up to the 1950s, it was real common for uh, and well, I, and, and, and 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 it was common for dogs and people <laughs> to work, right? Uh, uh, you know, in 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 restaurants, you know, fifteen hour workday were was not uncommon. Mm -hmm, uh, right. With no, with no overtime. Yeah, and the hospitality industry certainly has been the lantern rouge on the train for labor rights and privileges. They right. work the hardest and get the least to show for it. Among among others, yes, that's absolutely yeah. true. So, mm -hmm, unfortunately, many people have no idea what it took to get the eight-hour day, and so take it for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true, and uh, and uh, and May Day is really a, a day to remember that struggle. Mm -hmm. um, according to Wikipedia, again on. April 21st, 1856, Australian stonemasons in Victoria undertook a mass stoppage as a part of the eight-hour workday movement. It became a yearly commemoration, inspiring American workers to have their first work stoppage. At its convention in Chicago in 1884, the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions Resolved that, quote, eight hours shall constitute a legal day labor from and after May 1st, 1886, and that we recommend to labor organizations throughout this jurisdiction 
that they so direct their laws as to conform to this resolution by the time named, end quote. The leadership of the Knights of Labor under Terence V. Powderly rejected appeals to join the movement as a whole, but many local Knights of Labor assemblies joined the strike call, including Chicago, Cincinnati, mm-hmm. and Milwaukee. On May 1st, 1886, Albert Parsons, head of the Chicago Knights of Labor, with his wife, Lucy Parsons, and two children, led 80,000 people down Michigan Avenue in Chicago, which Mm -hmm. is, that's the main drag in downtown Chicago, uh, in what is regarded as the first modern May Day parade. And they they had the chant, eight-hour day with no cut in pay. That was one of the chants that they had. Mm -hmm. Um, In support of the eight-hour day, uh, in the next few days, they were joined nationwide by 350,000 workers who went on strike at 1,200 factories, including 70,000 strikers in Chicago, 45,000 in New York, 32,000 in Cincinnati, and additional thousands in other cities. Some workers gained shorter hours, eight or nine, with no reduction in pay. Others accepted pay cuts with the reduction in hours. On May 3rd, 1886, August Spies, editor of the Arbeiter Zeitung, which is translated as the workers' mm-hmm. newspaper in German, uh, spoke at a meeting of six... So, so here, here we get to the kind of the historical, uh, the big history here, mm-hmm. uh, 1886. Um, spoke, August Spice spoke at a meeting of 6,000 workers, and afterwards, many of them moved down the street to harass strike breakers at the McCormick plant in Chicago. And the McCormick plant, of course, made farm implements mm-hmm. and were notorious uh, anti-labor. Uh, the police arrived, opened fire, and killed four people, wounding many more. At a subsequent rally uh, the next day on May 4th to protest this violence, a bomb exploded in Haymarket Square. On May 5th in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the state militia fired on a crowd of strikers killing seven, including a schoolboy and a man feeding chickens in his yard. Subsequently, mm. hundreds of labor activists were rounded up and the prominent labor leaders, Albert Parsons, August Spies, Samuel Fielden, Michael Schwab, Adolf Fischer, Louis Lang, George Engel, and Oscar Nieb were arrested for the murder of the Chicago police officers. They were tried, all convicted, and Engel, Fischer, Parsons, and Spies were executed. They were hung, giving the movement its first martyrs, mm-hmm. named the Haymarket Martyrs. Then on June 26, 1893, many years later, Illinois Governor John Peter Altgeld set the remaining leaders free and granted full pardons to all those who tried claiming they were innocent of the crime for which they had been tried. And the hanged men had been victims of, quote, hysteria, pack juries, and a biased judge, end quote. And this caused international outrage. It did. You know, executing uh, labor, innocent labor leaders for crimes they didn't commit. Um, This is Wikipedia again. At the convention of the American Federation of Labor in 18 or the AFL in 1888, it was decided to campaign for the shorter workday again. May 1st, 1890 was agreed upon as the date on which workers would strike, go on strike for an eight hour workday. In 1889, AFL President Samuel Gompers wrote to the first Congress of the Second International 
Second Socialist International, mm -hmm. which was meeting in Paris. He informed the word world socialists of the AFL's plans and proposed an international fight for a universal eight-hour workday. In response to Gomper's letter, the Socialist International Working Men's Association, the second international uh, meeting in Paris, endorsed the date for the international demonstrations and thus started the international tradition of May Day. The call from the Second International encouraged May Day demonstrations that took place in the United States and most countries in Europe. Demonstrations were also held in Chile, Cuba, and Peru. May Day was formally recognized as an annual event at the International Second Congress in 1891. The International Socialist Congress in Amsterdam in 1904 called on all social democratic party organizations and trade unions of all countries to demonstrate energetically on the 1st of May for the legal establishment of the eight hour day, for the class demands of the proletariat and for universal peace. The Congress made it mandatory upon the proletarian organizations of all countries to stop work on May 1st, wherever it is possible without injury to the workers." End quote. So the International Workers Day or Labor Day for short is now celebrated worldwide. It is, and the vast majority of the countries of the world have an official Labor Day holiday on May 1st. The only countries that don't have an official day on May 1st is Canada, Australia, New Zealand, which has their own earlier fight for the eight-hour day, Japan, mm -hmm. which has several national holidays at the beginning of May, as absolutely Jim, Jim knows, some, <laughs> some Caribbean countries, and the United States. Why, of all places, the home of the Haymarket Martyrs and a century-long fight for the eight-hour workday, not celebrate Labor Day on May 1st? That's right. Because we're exceptional, How Jim. Odd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I just, you should know this by now. Yeah, um, well, I sure do. But um, I'm trying to speak on behalf of the audience. I see. Yes. Well, that's good. Um, <laughs> um, here's Wikipedia again. Um, there was disagreement among labor unions in the early 1890s about when a holiday celebrating workers should be with some advocating for continued emphasis of the September, March, and picnic date, while others sought the designation of the more politically charged date of May 1st. Conservative Democratic President Grover Cleveland was one of those concerned that a labor holiday on May 1st would tend to become a commemoration of the Haymarket Affair and would strengthen socialist and anarchist movements that backed the May 1st commemoration around the globe. Mm. In 1887, he publicly supported the September Labor Day holiday as a less inflammatory alternative, formally adopting the date as a United States federal holiday through a law that he signed in 1894. What do you know? And um, cur in, curiously, on the other side of the Rio Grande River, they called, uh, uh, you know, Labor Day. We're in, in the Haymarket riot, the day of the Chicago martyrs. Ah. So they, they identify it as the seminal event that started it all. Yeah. Yep. That's well, interesting. I'd like to add mm -hmm. just for a minute here that the, the many aspects of, of labor were, mm -hmm. were established by the, by the Masons, by masonry. 
No kidding. Freemason guys. Oh, yeah. The ones they, that drive the midget Mustangs and they, they, they divided the gotcha. day by three, eight hours of labor, mm -hmm. eight hours of rest and and um, and, and eight um, hours of what you will. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. In an eight, in eight hours of study. Yeah. So that, you know, th these were concepts. I mean, the masonry basically is the labor union. Hmm. Most. Hmm most radical organization on earth run by the most conservative people you could find. <laughs> Indeed. It, it happens that way. So, um, so Labor Day became the celebration of the end of summer. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Going, going back to work for the winter. That's right. <laughs> and May Day became a target for further crushing socialism from Wikipedia Quote, in 1947, the year that the Taft-Hartley amendments to the National Labor Relations Act were passed by Congress, May 1st was established as Loyalty Day by the U.S. Veterans of Foreign Wars as a way to counter communist influence and recruitment at May Day rallies. Loyalty Day was celebrated across the country with patriotic parades and ceremonies. However, the growing conflict over U.S. involvement in Vietnam detracted from the popularity of these celebrations. In 1958, the American Bar Association campaigned to have May 1st designated as Law Day, which was acknowledged in 1961 by a joint resolution of Congress. Oh, and um, <laughs> now I get, we, we get to invoke a ghost from the past. So as Paul Harvey, the conservative radio commentator, would say, now you know the rest of the story. Good day. <laughs> I would call Paul Harvey. I didn't Harvey. say anything about corn huskers lotion either. I would call Paul, Paul Harvey a reactionary. Yeah. Conservative. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I was biting my tongue. That's why I sounded so weird when I. <laughs> yeah. My voice to his voice. My, my grandparents uh, like to listen to him. Um, so I, mm -hmm. I, I got a lot of that when I was visiting them. Um, Page my two. father liked to listen to him and it was always on the radio when he was in the car and he would be swearing shaking his fist at him. <laughs> and I, and I was Sounds a, like a nice guy, Jim. I, I was a kid. Good stock. Thought, Why do you keep listening to this if this makes you so mad? <laughs> he said, because that's my job. Uh-huh. <laughs> It, it's it, and then there's the the equivalence today with the television or the computer screen, right? People talking back to it. Um, oh yeah. So, well, tomorrow so, is is. Oh, go ahead, Jim. Um, well, we can all chime in as a chorus. Tomorrow is May Day. It is. What event can people attend here in Missoula? Well, if people, what, what do you recommend? I, what, uh, if people feel so moved, um, we're not trying to force this on you. Um, no, no, no. People uh, can come to, out to the May Day picnic at the Northside Park Picnic Shelter. That will last from 2 p.m. until 5 p.m. Note the time, Jim. Um, uh, <laughs> thank you. The, the veggie and meat items will be gr grilled there. Participants are asked to bring a potluck dish, plates and utensils, and your own beverage. Jim, mm -hmm. beer and wine is allowed in this park. So oh, that's might, wonderful. Might and it's, 
bring a growler uh, right <laughs> and ironically it's right next to the catholic cemetery yes that's that is true so um, you can have spirits and souls <laughs> uh well Anyway, uh, at third, the third wave workers of Missoula who work at Black Coffee Roasters and who are uh, in the midst uh, very soon, actually next week, they're going to get their ballots, oh, mail-in ballots to vote on, on their unionization. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be there too. So, And some of them will make a little presentation and you could meet them. Um, right. I, I plan on being there, um, you know, and it sounds like you too, Jim, Jim Liska, I think it's a little long of a drive for you, um, but oh, yeah. you're, but you're invited. Um, well, thank you. Uh, and so the event is sponsored by the Western Montana chapter of the Democratic Socialists mm -hmm. of America or DSA. I'll say some, uh, some conditions for you, Jim. <laughs> so as usual, Lots of news to cover from this week. What's first in our current news, Mark? Well, pretty much the same thing that's been first in our news yeah, for the last couple of years. Which is too bad. Yeah, and, and you already know what I'm going to say. It's uh, okay. Despite 17 months of vaccines against COVID-19 being available in the U.S., the pandemic is still with us. According to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, the overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases of whatever variety mm -hmm. in the U.S. is now at a slowly rising rate of about 39,500 cases a day, down from over 1.3 million per day on January 10th of this year, which was by far the highest rates for the mm -hmm. U.S. during this entire pandemic. Currently, the U.S. is now falling to one of the lowest infection rates per capita. However, now many scientists and others question the validity and accuracy of the CDC's case numbers because of the, <clears throat> one, because of the prevalence of unreported home testing, which is pretty widespread now. Mm -hmm. And also just to summarize it, the incompetency of the CDC. Um, so take those numbers with a grain of salt too. <clears throat> The highest per capita rates of COVID infection today are in New Zealand, Australia, South Korea, Finland, and Germany, where new variants of the COVID-19 virus is making the rounds. According to a report on the April 14th edition of <laughs> National Public Radio, um, about, one of the, about one of the new COVID variants, the BA.2.12.1, uh, <laughs> that really rolls off the tongue. Yes, it really does. Um, they said in their report, but it's early days for this virus, the B.2.12.1. B Scientists have detected this variant in six countries as of two weeks ago, including Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, Israel, and Luxembourg. But the vast majority of cases are in the U.S., and those are localized Ooh. primarily to central New York. I, I took a look at a map, and I don't know if this particular variety is the one, but pretty much the East Coast and the West Coast are, are going up in infection rates, big, big time. Oh, boy. So that's so it's just, a, just a warning. Yeah, and um, a few people live there. A f uh, just a few. Um, epidemiologist William Hanag at Harvard University says, it is worth noting that the incidence of this variant is not very high at the moment, so the total number of cases are not huge at present. But what does this new variant portend? 
After a few months of COVID cases declining across the country, several regions are starting to see cases rise again, including New England and Washington, D.C. But this rise seems independent of these new variants, says virologist Jeremy Luban at UMass Chan Medical School. Luban says, in the Boston area where I am, the numbers came down maybe as low as five new cases per day per 100,000 people. But now cases are creeping up again. We may be starting to see some of these new variants here now, but cases have been steadily going up before they were there, end quote. At over 1 million, we've passed that mark, 1,140,000 deaths. The U.S. is still by far the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. This is equivalent. The number of deaths in the U.S. is equivalent to the population of the city of San Jose, California. That's the, uh, that's the 10th largest city in the country. Um, the U.S. has so far accounted for 18% of all the deaths in the world and for 16% of the confirmed cases, all still with only 4% of the world's population. That's, that's appalling. It's unwavering. We have been reporting this topic from day one. And the U.S. seems to be leading the charge in the wrong direction and it's, it's in the incremental differences stay the same they're unwavering except for one, uh, one thing i've been noticing is the oh, number good. percentage of cases is going down <clears throat> but i'm i'm wondering how much of that is due to the bad numbers that the cdc is producing yeah and as you mentioned um home testing it could be giving you numbers that aren't that aren't getting reported and right. being absorbed in the database. Right. And so, so you know grim things to be exceptional at. Not like we haven't said that before. Yeah, really. <clears throat> um so in in Montana, COVID nineteen web at the Montana state of Montana COVID nineteen website and the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, Montana has had three thousand two hundred and sixty deaths from COVID. That's up 100 people from two weeks ago. That's so a lot. Yeah, we're still losing 50 people a week from COVID and people thinking it's over. Um, and this is about mm. equal to that of the population of the town of Glasgow, Montana, out, out in the Northeast. Out, not the one in Scotland, I trust. Yeah, not, that, not that Glasgow, no. <laughs> um, um, as of Friday, Montana is averaging an increasing rate of about 70 new cases a day. Again, oh, God. That, that's with, that's with uh, all these problems with reporting case numbers. But it, I think it's true, fully 25% of all Montanans have had or have COVID. Uh, so that's, that's a huge uh, number of people. And there oh, are currently... Yeah. There are currently 21 people hospitalized with the virus, up 10 from two weeks ago. So there's a lot of people dying that aren't hospitalized, um, apparently. Um, I don't know how else to read that statistic. Um, and, then, and then their cause of death is attributed to COVID. Um, well, we have been saying this since February of 2020, mm -hmm. and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when in public spaces indoors, to distance themselves from others best you can, to frequently wash their hands, and to get the vaccine if we're going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. 
just like labor in the 19th century. <laughs> Same yeah, I'm, vibe. I'm not sure what the sacrifice part is, Mark. If mm -hmm. you're, it's not a sacrifice to care for your neighbor. That's yeah, absolutely absolutely right. absolutely. So at the picnic tomorrow, we'll all be in masks, carrying around a squeeze bottle of sanitizer. Well, we won't be wearing masks because we're outside. And so oh, yeah? the, the okay. health authorities have finally figured out that it is, uh, you know, we cover this in shows before, but um, I know. <laughs> if you go into a grocery store and they have a plexiglass between you and the cashier, mm -hmm. that is a result of a misunderstanding of the nature of COVID. Okay. And, and that came from a theory that COVID was passed along with droplets that you breathed out. Right. And that, and that they were big enough that they would, you know, if you could stop them with a plexiglass or if you stood far enough away, they would just drop to the, to the ground. Right. And not sure. affect anybody else, but it's unfortunately, and, and, and that was a lot of scientists and the WHO actually world health organization was, adamant about sticking with that version of things for a hmm. long time after the outbreak of COVID, which turns out to be completely wrong. Um, hmm. It is spread by aerosols, which is like smoke, right? If Ooh, you, okay. if you were gotcha. to blow out smoke and it would hang in the air, mm -hmm. that's how COVID gets passed. And so uh, as, as uh, you know, as, as Jim Liska, you said that it, it's really not you know, it, it, it's not that much of a sacrifice to wear a mask for no, somebody not. else. And that's what that, that because the aerosol mask will stop most of the aerosols. That is why you wear it to not spread it to others. It's not going to keep you necessarily, unless you got a, you know, N95 mask, but, um, but it's those aerosols that you want to stop. And um, we all breathe them out and breathe them in all the time. Yeah. So. So it's another example of all those people on Facebook and cable news uh, not understanding that the power of numbers and an aerosol is not a droplet. Right, right. Some There are some zeros and a decimal point that separate. Yeah, much smaller nature. particles, mm -hmm. as it were, or, or yes. My name is Dave Jones. I am an organizer with the Western Montana chapter of Democratic Socialists of America. The 1st of May is known as May Day by the international labor movement. Though Americans typically associate the date with a pole and bright ribbons, May Day is a time to pay tribute to those working class activists who came before us, as well as those who carry the struggle today for worker power. Though it is not well known, Montana has a proud history as one of the birthplaces of the modern labor movement. Frank Little was hung in Butte trying to organize miners, and the rebel girl, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, was jailed here in Missoula defending the right to free speech. One might assume that progress for workers was achieved through legislative or judicial process. But the truth is that each gain of the working class has been the result of bitter, often violent confrontation with the capitalist class and those state forces under their control. 
Each victory, such as the right to organize into unions, the eight-hour workday, safety standards, and the end of child labor was won through direct action and mass movements through strikes and slowdowns. In retaliation, workers and their families were murdered, beaten, jailed, and blackballed. On May 1, 1886, exactly 136 years ago, the American Federation of Labor called for nationwide strikes wherever the eight-hour day was refused. Three days later, 3,000 people had gathered at Haymarket Square in Chicago. Soon after, 180 policemen showed up and ordered the crowd to disperse. A bomb was thrown in the midst of the police, wounding 66. Seven died. The police fired into the crowd, killing several people and wounding another 200. In August of that year, eight men labeled anarchists were convicted in a sensational and controversial trial. Seven of those men received a death sentence despite there being no solid evidence of complicity. We recite this history to honor those who sacrificed so much and to keep their memories alive. We do it as well to remind ourselves that this same struggle continues today. New unions are forming and existing unions are striking for better working conditions. In Staten Island, New York, the independent Amazon Labor Union just won an historic election by a wide margin to create the first unionized workplace in Amazon's extensive network of fulfillment, delivery, and sortation centers across the US. As of April 14th, two union election wins in Boston, Massachusetts for Starbucks Workers United means now 20 Starbucks stores have unionized. More than 200 other Starbucks locations have filed or announced their intention to unionize. Student workers at Grinnell, Kenyon, Wesleyan, and Dartmouth colleges are organizing. Teachers in the Twin Cities have walked out. Nurses at Kaiser hospitals and farm workers in Washington state recently struck to win better conditions and pay. And here in Missoula, Montana, the workers at Black Coffee are tapping into this energy and seizing this historical moment to build their own union and gain power at the workplace. While billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz call the unionization drives a quote, assault on our country, unquote, on this May Day, the community needs to stand in solidarity with those whose labor actually built this country and continues to do so every day. Happy May Day. Which side are you on?
That was Natalie Merchant singing Which Side Are You On? You are listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it on Missoula Community Radio. In the Missoula Valley, that is KFGM 105.5 FM from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. on Saturdays and at other times. Uh, Live streaming at the same time on 1055kfgm.org and on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash vop hyphen Montana, all spelled out, or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. It's time to talk about Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's, I got this interesting story just trying to pick up stuff that's not reported very well. Uh, <laughs> like a lot of things like, like almost all of it right yeah. um, but uh, this story is like really fascinating to me um, because uh, the you know put it this way the United States and NATO uh, and we've covered this in past shows I mean you know in my opinion they they definitely provoked Russia mm-hmm. and, and Russia Russia didn't have to invade that that was that's a war crime in and of itself, but they were certainly provoked. And, um, but in the provocation, and then in the, it, it, they weren't willing to send, you know, our country is not going to send troops to Ukraine to fight Russia. Um, and neither are the European uh, countries. There's a lot of volunteers and a mm-hmm. lot of mercenaries that are in Ukraine, um, but uh, not U S or NATO troops. And, um, and so instead of sending troops, we're st- sending weapons, which is probably, uh, you know, we can talk about that. But I the, know the, the, the main sounds like the Revolutionary War so far. Well, yeah, the, the main we're thing, not tipping our hand, but here, have all these guns. And <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, it, but the, for you. The, the, the main the main tool against Russia being used besides, mm-hmm. you know, Ukrainians dying is. Uh, is are these economic sanctions right right and so um and they're you know if if uh you know the propaganda coming from our government is to be believed which it's not um these these are massive and 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 causing great damage to russia well uh maybe maybe not and so this story kind of goes into what's going on Mm -hmm. now with probably the most important export uh from russia is natural gas which uh, european a lot of european countries heavily depend on that um and you know there's other exports out of you i mean there's a lot of food that's exported out of ukraine too and we can cover that maybe in some other show but um and uh, eve smith um we've quoted from her quite a bit she, uh, writing in her blog naked capitalism on april 29th this is what she says On the whole, European and U.S. leaders are continuing to make a very poor showing of the situation they instigated with Russia. The Biden administration decided to seize $300 billion of Russian foreign exchange reserves, overconfident that they would crater the Russian economy. Ironically, however, the sanctions greatly reduced the Russian need for foreign exchange (laughs) for trade. (laughs) since respectable U.S. and European companies took it upon themselves to stop or limit exports to Russia. And Russian banks don't fund in dollars or euros. 
uh, in contrast with the 1990s when the economy was significantly dollarized, um, they, the Russian banks fund in rubles, right? That's what they do. And the mm -hmm. world still needs Russian oil, gas, metals, you name it. So after an initial shock and awe plunge, the ruble is very close to its highs versus the dollar over the last two years, uh, uh, close to highs in its value. Despite mm -hmm. the dollar being at its highest level against major currencies in the last 20 years. That, if you just think about that. Right. Um, the ruble took a big dip, and now it's almost back mm -hmm. up to its highest yeah. point that it's been for yeah, a long I was, time. I was looking at those numbers this week, and it was astounding that uh, the U.S. dollar is doing really is is really high relative to other currencies with right. of you know major industrialized nations in the Western realm, and the ruble is doing fine. So it's <laughs> it's almost like the people that are being affected most by the uh, you know blockades of energy are have, having their economies revalued based on performance expectations. Yeah, I think I But think you didn't hear us talk like that at all. No, <laughs> no. Um, no, and and uh, uh, and there's and there's a reason why the rubles the value of the ruble is still high. So mm -hmm. um, we'll get get that in just a minute but Russia projected a budget surplus before this crisis, and its government income will be even higher due to the increase in energy revenues, right? Mm -hmm. So the cost of, these, right. of this energy is going way up because of the war and, and because mm -hmm. of all these sanctions. And so that's really doing Russia a huge favor, right? Right. Um, and it's you look at if you look at capitalization and, you know, net value of assets, the stuff that you don't sell still has value. Yeah, of course. And uh, and, and there's by no means a universal uh, around the world rejection of Russian oil and gas. OK, so, oh, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like the Iranians don't sell any of their oil because we told them not to. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, Prime Minister Mikhail uh, Mishustin told the Duma, which is the Russian parliament, in early mm -hmm. April that all receipts would now be re receipts from oil and gas sales would be respent into the economy. Uh -huh. The government is embarking on more investment, loan discount and tax relief programs. Uh, but Russia spent decades having to be a good budget balancing surplus running economy because it was significantly dollarized and had to look fiscally responsible to support the value of the ruble. Okay, so just stop right there. I mean, we've covered this before. We've talked about currency and mm -hmm. that um, uh, a, a country that's, you know, uh, sovereign in its own currency basically has unlimited, you know, except for inflation uh, mm -hmm. restrictions, um, could spend money pretty much unlimited on whatever it wanted, whatever the real economy could handle. Um, but if you have a large foreign debt in dollars, for instance, like a, a country like uh, Venezuela or a country like, um, you know, Russia and Ukraine, they or Russia used to have this big debt in dollars because of the IMF loans that it would get, you know, it would all be in dollars. And so 
uh, the U.S. wasn't going to take rubles to pay off those loans. They had to come up with dollars. So that really uh, put a big crimp on the economy. Argentina is a classic example of that. Oh, yes. Um, it's a classic example of a whole bunch of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but once they paid off all their foreign debt, right, mm -hmm. uh, in, in dollars, <clears throat> Russia is sitting in a pretty good position economically, actually, mm -hmm. uh, e even in despite all the sanctions. Um, Russia will suffer a serious recession. This is uh, Eve Smith writing again. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Russia will suffer a serious recession, not just due to adaptation to having to produce even more internally, <clears throat> but also due to not being willing to run deficits when it is now able to operate as a fiat currency issuer. So, so they're being, um, they're spending, they're, they're spending as they have the money. Um, mm -hmm. And even though the real economy shock has yet to fully manifest itself, the Russian top team is doing what it can to get in front of those issues. And they've also been warning the public that a second phase of difficulties is in the offing, which they expect to be the most acute starting soon and for the following six months. In other words, Russia managed the initial shock, financial shock vastly better than the U.S. and Europe imagined was possible. That leaves the West with the big problem that Russia can and is pushing back. It is telling that only very mild Russian countersanctions are putting Europe on tilt, such as demanding that Bulgaria and Poland pay for Russian natural gas in rubles and not in dollars. Mm -hmm. The U.S. and even more so Europe look to be hoist on their own sanctions petard. Yet they'll be damned if they'll formally walk back, even though there's a lot of fudging going on. And so Smith, she recaps, Putin announced its so-called gas for rubles program late last month with details to follow. The reasoning was simple. Russia had just had 300 billion of what amounted to payment on past commodities exports stolen. So that was the dollarized part. I mean, they, they paid back in dollars those loans. Mm -hmm. That was 300 billion. It was sitting in a bank in the United States. The U.S. government seized that, just like it seized the money uh, of Afghanis uh, mm -hmm. and, um, <clears throat> and saying, too bad for you. Um, and so uh, it was not, Russia was not going to have payments on its gas exports to unfriendly countries subject to being clawed back again. I mean, how many times can you do that to a country before they, you know, that Lucy pulls back the football right. and Charlie Brown does a, you know, does a header. Uh, you, you, you learn pretty fast not to trust right. who's holding the football. Um, yeah, allusions to football are always welcome on this show. Well, the way to assure that was to get payments in rubles, since rule payment and clearing, check clearing, is under the control mm -hmm. of the Russian Central Bank, of course, right? Mm -hmm. um, as, and as we anticipated, Russia, this is Eve Smith, speaking, as we anticipated, Russia implemented pretty much the only version that would respect Putin's boundary conditions, which included adhering to the terms of current contracts. So all that really changed was that gas buyers would have to set up accounts at Gazprom Bank, which was not sanctioned, by the way. Oh. Russia did not make this requirement effective until the next payments were due, and the earliest 
or the end of April. If you take the war out of the picture, this matter would otherwise be a pretty routine commercial dispute. In other words, you stiffed me on some actually really big payments, and rather than argue about that, I'm requiring a minor change in payment arrangements to prevent that from happening again. Hmm. Okay, but the yeah, that's uh, I've not thought of it in those terms. That's pretty clever. Yeah, that, and and it's <clears throat> pretty simple, right? Um, but the screeching from Europe was astonishing. You'd think they believed they had the right to have Russia send them gas for free. Amusingly, uh, European Union national leaders, with the exception of Hungary, said no to mm -hmm. Russia. <laughs> Italy and Germany, the two biggest importers, were particularly noisy. The European Commission supported that action by warning that the Russian mechanism would violate sanctions. Then it appears everyone began to work out that there was no ready or even medium term substitutes for Russian gas. Mm -hmm. and, and heating prices increases are expected to be grim. Uh, Poland, Bulgaria, and Finland are still saying no to paying for natural gas and rubles. So Russia is halting shipments to them which has led to screeches of blackmail and promises of yet more sanctions. Russia is also not allowing siphoning off of transiting gas. In other words, gas that's moving through a country right. in a pipeline and that they sort of tap into it and pull out, you know, like we used to do on cable TV, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, <clears throat> Russia is also not allowing siphoning off of transiting gas, which it tolerated when Ukraine did it. But the real fun comes with Russia refusing to sell gas to the Gazprom subsidiary in Germany that Germany expropriated. That operation wasn't just an office with a bunch of employees. It had valuable hard assets like storage operations. So this sure looks like Russia wants compensation before it turns the spigot back on. Back to the national holdouts. Only 6% of Finland's energy comes from gas. So even though 65% of that is from Russia, Finland has said in early April expected to be able to replace that by fall. Okay, however, Poland is in a pickle. 18% of its total energy is gas and half is from Russia. Plus 30% is oil of which two thirds is Russia supplied. Poland at least has enough gas reserves to carry it through the winter. Bulgaria imports 73% of its gas from Russia, which is 10% to 15% of its total energy use, but it has much lower reserves than Poland. In other words, on paper, the refuseniks are better able to weather a loss of supply than the really big dependents like Germany and Italy. According to Alexander Mercurius, uh, and which Eve Smith notes, I have not been able to verify independently. The Polish plan to fill the gap amounts mainly to getting gas from other European Union buyers. <clears throat> this is, Smith says, this is gas musical chairs with the loss of Polish and Bulgarian buys amounting to chairs being removed. Even if Poland can procure some from its neighbors, it's going to have significant Russian content and come at a higher price than a direct buy. Stubbornness is costly. And one last note here from Politico's morning European newsletter, and that this was yesterday. Um, 
This is from Politico. If Russian President Vladimir Putin wanted to sow discord within the EU and keep countries guessing with his decision to cut off gas to Poland and Bulgaria, he has succeeded. Confusion continues to reign over how far European buyers can go without breaching EU sanctions, with a special meeting of the bloc's energy managers scheduled for Monday. And this piece also from Politico, uh, morning European newsletter, top Bulgarian politicians, including Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Asen Vesilev, in Brussels on Thursday to meet the commission after Russia cut gas to Bulgaria for not paying its bills and rubles. Told Politico, the EU suggested workarounds were probably not really an option. This destined, end quote, um, and this is, this is the last thing that uh, Smith says, this destined to be ineffective scrapping over Russia's new payment conditions illustrates how the West is none too happy about the new economic order they've created. And as economist Michael Hudson stressed, Europe would come out the big loser. Yeah, and it's interesting that the, the Southeastern Europe um, seems to have specific spots where there are problems, but many, many other countries are not being bothered, like all you know, like all the old you know, Eastern Bloc countries and um, well, except Greece for Pol- and Turkey. Poland yeah, and exactly. Bulgaria, though. Yeah, Pol- yeah but, but it's interesting. You know, those two are in trouble. And Viktor Orban had to, uh, you know, kiss Putin's ring and, and give him and pay in rubles. But I, it's, I, it doesn't seem to be a universally um, bad thing. Some well, people are in worse shape than others. Well, yeah, and I think uh, I, I think though the shoe is going to be dropping on a lot of other countries. Oh, okay. And, they, and Bulgaria and Poland were the first because uh, Putin had said, "Well, um, you know, the next the next bill, you know, that we send you, you have to pay in rubles." And so Poland and Bulgaria were the first to get the next bill. Oh, okay. I and got so, you. so some of these other countries are going to be facing the same thing. Okay. So yeah. the, it probably is a blanket. That's the same, the thickness across the whole region. It, it, Just the, it, it's the peculiarities sort of, of Bulgaria right. and Poland, you know, right. Yeah. They yeah, did Pol- have the covers pulled off its toes first. Right. Yeah. And Pol- this looks like Poland has got more of a reserve supply and, and some countries probably have, you know, varying amounts, but certainly Germany and in Italy, they use a lot more than Poland and Bulgaria put together, mm-hmm. and they and they are pretty heavily dependent up, upon that natural gas, and um, hence the squealing. I mean, it's uh, <clears throat> and you know, I what I can't figure out is our our brilliant leaders um hadn't thought hadn't thought this through right i mean uh, i i don't understand i mean and this is kind of why i think putin um needs to be you know put in the dock as a war criminal for sure because um all he had to do was do this instead of invade ukraine and he would have had NATO pull out of Ukraine, you know, toot sweet, right? Oh, I got you. Um, okay. I mean, but but our leaders are, I I don't know what 
what are what are they doing? They're 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 not thinking through the consequences of of, of their provocation. I, it's it, um, and it's it's not going to get any better, right? This no, is, I. And, this is um, not going to improve. You know, I sh- I share your concern that <laughs> this is not the first time people have heard this from this program, mm-hmm. but there's there is. There is a um, a school of thought that that it's adhered to by everybody. A month or two ago, I was talking about how the world was was wrapped around the vision of uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski and Madeleine Albright, when really it was, there were many more factors going on. It's uh, <laughs> just because it's international relations doesn't mean that it's um, outstanding relations. Yes, that's apparently true. Um, Yeah, it's, you know, um, I I can't see but anything but just like really bad leadership um, Mm -hmm. on the part of the West. And, um, you know, I mean, they're making Putin look like a real... um, statesman you know right which is what he would welcome (laughs) exactly i mean uh no i know it's uh it's it's exasperating i don't think putin needed the west to illustrate exactly the kind of person he is Mm -hmm. oh no no he did it all on his own he did and and the west i and i'm sorry I, i my belief is that the west has done nothing mm-hmm. that we could have done that this war could have ended six weeks ago yeah yeah i know it's it's so easy to think about what are the parallels with world war ii when it was the same region same forces um same expectations yep. and uh, it became a debacle because there was posturing you know had people taken a firmer stand on expansion from central europe going east and you know and south um things could have been different but i'm not alone in saying that (laughs) everybody's got an opinion yeah yeah i I just wish we would have reacted in a more proactive way in in a a way i think that biden as much as i appreciate what he's done so far as presidency, he's he's culpable to mm-hmm. blame for it for the, the massacre of countless thousands yeah. of Ukrainians because he didn't want to escalate a war. That's going to escalate after anyway, there's nothing right. to save. Yeah, I know. We're, well, we're, I, we're well I, I I also think it goes back earlier than that though, Jim. I agree. Um, <laughs> that that you know for for a few decades, um, our, our man Yeltsin, right. <laughs> who mm-hmm. was, who was, who, who's really unpopular in Russia, uh, for various reasons, um, now, but, um, he, he warned, uh, uh Gorbachev warned, um, George Kennan warned, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of people, uh, not necessarily R- Russia files, uh, Russia lovers warn mm-hmm. that expanding NATO was a provocation to Russia, yet the U.S. and NATO 
continued to do just that for a good 25 years. And, uh, uh, and I think that that's that provocation, it clearly was a provocation and, um, Mm -hmm. but they didn't think through, I mean, uh, okay. It's one thing to provoke something, but you should have a game plan on how you're going to carry that out um, in, in rightly or wrongly, but all they appeared to have as a plan is to impose sanctions on Russia mm-hmm. and then have Ukrainians fight Russia, um, and uh, which they're losing, by the way, um, big time. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and what's, what's the, what's the end? I don't see the end game here. I don't see what right. they're trying to accomplish with, with, with this long provocation. And then, and, and then now it's, you know, I don't know. Incompetent is maybe too polite of a word. Um, I don't know. Mm. Uh, well, I've been on record as saying that, um, there it, in decades earlier, there should have been a rethink of what is our posture and what, and what, what is the the fair and just and progressive thing to be done about uh you know two groups that were you know competing with each other and then in the in in the post-war era and then when gorbachev said enough this isn't working for us you know it which should have been all hugs and kisses and you know go in there and give russia a marshall plan and boy them up and, and, you know, bring them into the fold. Then it never happened. You right. Had, you had cold right. warriors that never rewrote the script. There should have been a page one rewrite. Yeah. And people understood that the future could be different, but only if you chose to respect other people and understand their beliefs and their needs and their values. And yeah. they just wanted to stick it a finger in there in in the russian bear's eye yeah it, here we are it's it's an old it's an old and tired sort of thing right that oh yeah we you know R- russia's inherently evil right so we got to keep fighting them right regardless of who's in charge or what i mean i, I know uh, i know it's tragic it's with uh, gorbachev we had a opportunity yeah there was a absolutely. bbc show done um, of Gorbachev meeting Reagan and they made Reagan look like an idiot that had no concept of the of the of the breadth and um, goals of what Gorbachev was offering and and the moment was lost and maybe now we have another couple of centuries of baloney to work through yeah it's because that instant was lost yeah yeah yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, and and in the end, right? It's uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I've been I've been calling this the war of the oligarchs, right? That yeah, um, and uh, which I, I firmly believe in in with all three parties. Um, I mean, there's no, I, I don't see any, you know, it's not about democracy in Ukraine. That's that's mm-hmm. I, I don't yeah, I, such I, as it is. Ukraine is still Ukraine. Right. It's, yeah. Uh, uh, it, it's uh, it's probably certainly, the one, one of the yeah, most corrupt countries in the world. Um, exactly. Well, and, the, all that that all of that, you know, five, 
you know, five o'clock shadow that's <laughs> that's that's on the western boundaries of Soviet Union is really sketch. The only place it's doing it's working really, really hard to pull itself together is Uzbekistan. Everything else is just, uh, you know, thug life. Hmm. Yeah. Well, don't well, you think the corruption in the Ukraine is probably committed by the top two percent? Yeah, it usually of, is everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And the rest yeah. of the people, the best of the rest of the Ukrainians, they, they want to just go back to their lives and cooking. Oh, I know. Yeah. Playing yeah. If you look at Ukrainian yep. history in the last 25 years, it looks like, uh, you know, the beer barons of Chicago. It's, you know, every week, you know, ascendancy has changed and, and some in some insult has happened to get people mad again yeah. and just reshuffle the cards. How's that for mixing up metaphors? <laughs> well, Jim Liska, you, 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 you make a really important point and it's like in, in all of this, right, that uh, it's the people in Ukraine that are suffering the most, the people in Russia that's suffering the most, and the people in Europe are going to, the ordinary people in Europe and, and the rest of the world are going to start suffering from all this. And who's going to, you know, make out like bandits? Well, it's, I mean, Putin's the head of a oligarchy in Russia, right? And they have elections. Right. Um the uh, they have elections in yeah. Ukraine, and yeah. it's it's run it's run by even more corrupt oligarchs, if that could be possible. And you know, right. in this country, it's you know the arms makers there, and the neocons, and uh, you know whatever oligarch is going to be making a lot of money here. Um, they're 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 the only ones that are going to win from any of this, and that's mm -hmm. why it's that's why it that needs way. to come to an it, it needs to come to an end and negotiated end as soon as possible. Well, the instruments of destruction and death have always been profitable to mm -hmm. the, the supporters of the of the powers that be. Yep. I mean, that's you know, if you make bullets for your living, you have to figure out a way to use them, or you're out of business. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Which is fairly simplistic, but it's true. But it's true. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, while we're on the topic of bullets, how about um, healthcare? <laughs> <laughs> how about healthcare? Right. <laughs> like the longest U.S. strike in 2021. Oh yes. Well, um, so nice segue, Jim. That was, you know, that's, that's my job. So. It was a little rocky, but you know, we, <laughs> we got there. Um, in, in the, uh, May edition of the magazine in these times, author Arparna Gopalan writes about the recent conclusion of the longest U S strike in 2021. And this is what, uh, she says, uh, the supplies still sitting in Marlena Pellegrino's car can help weather any season. Uh, she said, I have flip-flops in there, an umbrella and a winter coat. She said with a laugh. Pellegrino, with 700 fellow nurses, walked off the job at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts on March 8, 2021. These nurses picketed through rain and shine and sleet and snow through December, rather than concede their key demand, a higher nurse-to-patient ratio. 
Their struggle paid off January 3rd when they overwhelmingly voted to ratify a new contract, complete with staffing increases. As 2021's longest labor action, the St. Vincent nurses strike reflects the labor movement's rapidly expanding horizons. After decades of concessionary bargaining focused on an increasingly narrow set of bread and butter issues, such as pay and benefits, more recent labor actions have shifted to quote, common good demands, end quote, that include the broader communities workers are a part of and serve. Workers across the country have started bargaining for the common good over the past decade. Mm-hmm. In Connecticut, care workers negotiated higher Medicaid funding for nursing homes to secure the community's right to age with dignity. In West Virginia, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Minneapolis most recently, teachers went on strike for the right to a robust public education, and more than that too, Uh, health and and, uh, recreation opportunities and green space. Um, The St. Vincent's nurses strike followed the template of a common good strike in both its demands and tactics with patient well-being as its rallying cry and the broader Worcester community, uh, anyone who might become a patient one day in the words of one nurse, as the key beneficiary. The Mm -hmm. St. Vincent strike began after raises and better benefits had already been negotiated. So so that's kind of an interesting twist Mm. to this story, right? Um, Marie Ritaco, who who has been a nurse at the hospital for more than 35 years, says that workplace struggles over pay are justified in themselves, but we didn't go on strike for fair compensation, she said. Instead, we went on on that strike for patient safety, end quote. The struggle for patient safety is not unique to St. Vincent. And I'm just going to parenthetically say, I think it is the struggle in almost every healthcare facility in this country Mm -hmm. is that the the biggest issue is over short staffing. And that is, um, uh, and, and people get confused sometimes they say, well, people don't show up for work, that's short staffing. No, short staffing is when you uh, initially schedule too few people for too much work. And of course that saves the hospital money, right? Uh, but, uh, but that is uh, detrimental to patient care. Uh, so back to, back to this story, the In These Times story. Um, understaffing has become a key challenge across the healthcare industry over the past two decades, as hospitals increasingly seek to maximize patient revenue with fewer staff members. Meanwhile, studies have linked nurse understaffing to a host of adverse healthcare outcomes for patients, including an increased risk of complications and infections, increased odds of readmission, and a higher mortality rate. For nurses, an understaffed hospital means working harder, yet being unable to prevent worse outcomes. Nationally, nurses are changing employers and even quitting healthcare altogether in record numbers, supposedly due to, quote, burnout. But reporters who talk to nurses identify a deeper malaise. Um, Writes Ed Young in The Atlantic Magazine, healthcare workers aren't quitting because they can't handle their jobs. They're quitting because they can't handle being unable to do their jobs, end quote. Andrews, who has contemplated leaving nursing for exactly this reason, agrees. Uh, And uh, uh, she says, 
When you feel like you're not doing enough to take care of your patients, it is such a moral injury. Um, using the term moral injury to refer to the distress caused by being forced to break one's moral code, mm-hmm. uh, such as the dread nurses face when not allowed to take proper care of their patients. Andrews was far from alone in experiencing moral injury at an understaffed hospital, but not all St. Vincent nurses experience staff shortages the same way. Pellegrino, who has been at the hospital for 35 years, explains the nurse, nurse to patient ratio was a critical problem on many, but not all floors. She said, as an operating room nurse, you can only operate on one patient at a time. Uh, while nurses in the float pool and telemetry units might be caring for five patients at once. But even nurses with lower patient assignments join the picket line in solidarity with their colleagues and in service to their patients. Uh, Says progressive care nurse Amy Albani, who has been at St. Vincent's for 18 years, she said, in my specific unit, it wasn't as bad as some of the other units. When asked why she still went on strike, Albany says she did it as part of a union and as part of the hospital. She said, if you have other people in the hospital who aren't able to care safely for their patients, it's the same as if you aren't able to care for patient, your, your patients. With Tenant Healthcare Corporation at its helm, St. Vincent did not respond to the nurses' strike in the most obvious way, such as hiring more nurses. Instead, St. Vincent spent money to bring in contract travel nurses to try to break the strike. For their willingness to cross the picket line, these travel, traveling nurses were paid at least double what in-house nurses were paid, workers said. With travel nurses dampening the strike's impact on St. Vincent's bottom line, the hospital, which is now a for-profit hospital, right, which um, mm-hmm. honestly, if you were to ask me, Nothing in healthcare should be for profit. Nothing. Anything that touches healthcare should be not for profit. Um, and it was until 1973. That's right. Exactly right. Um, anyway, um, when travel nurses dampened the strike's impact on St. Vincent's bottom line, the hospital tried to wait the nurses out. But after six months, nurses say management was feeling the pressure. The cost of the strike and travel nurse contracts and security expenses was adding up, as were local politicians' calls to reach a deal. By this point, more than 100 hospital beds had been closed, and nurses say that patients freshly discharged from the emergency room were joining the picket line to tell the striking nurses what a mess the hospital was without them. Strikers were also hearing reports of ambulances being redirected away from St. Vincent to other hospitals which were also reaching capacity. On August 27th, 2021, 172 days into the strike and after two years of demanding safe staffing, the nurses finally received the concession they had been waiting for. Management agreed to limit nurses' patient assignments in the cardiac post-surgical unit on medical surgical and telemetry, telemetry floors in the behavioral health unit and beyond. As negotiations were wrapping up, management told their 700 striking nurses that more than 100 of them would not be getting their old positions back. Instead, they would be permanently replaced by their picket line crossing peers. 
The hospital was threatening to take these specialty positions from nurses who might have up to 40 years of experience, replacing them with recent graduates or inexperienced nurses from other departments, and then giving them sign-on bonuses. The nurses interpreted the hospital's move as a way to punish strikers and discourage future strikes. LeBlanc, uh, oh, um, I sort of lost that first name of a nurse named LeBlanc said, who is expendable? That's what they were deciding. Um, and quote, removing 100 nurses may have seemed safe to management given that the change was announced after the core strike issue had been resolved. And according to Albani, most nurses were already preparing to come off strike. But something else happened. At a meeting she will never forget, Albani instead witnessed nurses unequivocally agreeing that there was no way they would leave 100 of their coworkers behind. Many of these nurses had developed strong relationships with one another over the decades. Striking together for their patients had only strengthened those ties. Many said they would sooner quit their jobs or even nursing itself than cross the picket line and leave their friends and colleagues behind. Out of 800 total nurses at the hospital, nearly all 700 who originally went on strike remained on strike. Um, says a surgery nurse, Kathy Duzak, who had been at the hospital for, who has been at the hospital for 24 years. She said, we said, we're not voting on an agreement until everyone goes back. We walked out together and we will go back together, end quote. Nurses also said that the strike became bigger than just one hospital or one union. They felt a duty not only to their patients, but to each other and workers everywhere. Ritako uh, said, we had to stay out for the labor movement that was watching us. Um, negotiating committee co-chair Dominique Muldoon, who has been at St. Vincent for 25 years, says that nurses were especially unwilling to set a precedent of striking workers being replaced permanently. Similar threats have increasingly been used as strike-breaking tactics elsewhere, and in the absence of the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act, which would outlaw the practice, it is up to workers to make sure that permanent replacement does not become common practice. The nurses at St. Vincent took this responsibility very seriously. Um, says Albani, had the nurses let themselves be replaced, it would have been a total failure. Who would have ever gone on strike knowing you might not have a job in the end, end quote. St. Vincent nurses ultimately remained on strike for an additional four months. And strikes are hard on people. You don't, you don't really have much income, even if there's a good strike fund in the union. It's just a fraction of what you would be making mm -hmm. as a wage. And so uh, people were really sucking it up and, uh, and going out on strike for an additional four months until every striker was offered their original position back. They showed that together workers can fight threats of permanent replacement just as effectively as they fight for contract demands. Nurses voted 487 to nine to ratify the contract. Um, and uh, every strike is for the common good insofar as strikes strengthen worker power and improve standards across industries. But the movement for the common good stems from the understanding that when necessities such as healthcare and education are commodified or, or put a price tag on and beyond public control, 
then union issues go beyond people's rights as workers. Unions must now fight for people's rights as patients, as parents, as students, as tenants, and as debtors. For the nurses at St. Vincent, defending the common good meant fighting for a hospital where they could do what they were meant to do, and that is care. Says Patty Warman, a float pool nurse who has worked at St. Vincent for 34 years, 28 of those as a nurse, we are not making a pair of shoes or a pillow. We are caring for people, end quote. Yeah, that, that's an excellent <laughs> couple of paragraphs. Yeah, and I love how the... No, go ahead, Jim. <clears throat> What'd you say, Jim Liska? Oh, I just said that's fabulous. Yeah. That, that last part about the commitment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, we're, and I, I've been in the hospital an awful lot over the last 10 years. And I, I, I've had nothing but, I felt nothing but love and care from the nurses that have attended to me. Yeah. I mean, they, they're dedicated to their work because right. why else would you go into that business? Mm -hmm. Yep. I, I especially like how the word commodify, commodification was utilized. I remember a piece in the Harvard Business Journal a decade or two ago by Nicholas Carr, where he talks about the, the fad seems to be being able to... Um, isolate and and control specific steps and doing unusually difficult things so that you can then deconstruct it and make more money by shipping it around then when they say you know necessities such as healthcare and education are commodified that's really nailing it <laughs> right so yeah and it's it, a wonderful article i'm so glad that the listeners of KFGM have the benefit of stuff like this, Mark. Yeah. I think they set a great example on, on so many different levels. Um, I just thought this exactly. was a, a wonderful story. And honestly, in, in having organized and uh, in, in participated in strikes myself, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's scary and it's uh, you question yourself all the time. It's financially very difficult. Right. Uh, sometimes you don't get the community support you think you might be getting. Um, usually that's not the case. It sounds like the nurses had a lot of good support. Mm -hmm. um, and but everybody's you know, been sick <laughs> at some point. In yeah. Their life. <clears throat> yeah. It's it's not an easy thing to do, but it's mm -hmm. it, it is it is so empowering, right? It, it right. You realize that withholding your labor. Um, and, and, and they're actually pointing to a way in which uh, power could be built and used to st start making the kinds of changes that, that Congress seems in a, a completely unable to, to make, right? Um, oh, really? <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. I do. And, and, and so people go, well, you know, it's, it's useless and people, people are, you know, it, it's easy to be cynical and, and, you know, there's some mm -hmm. good reason to be cynical nowadays, but, um, but it's also like, you know, this kind of selfless and powerful action that speaks to something beyond themselves is, is, you know, should be inspirational. And it's not by any means the only story like this, 
but it's just one that we happen to to uh, uh, portray, you know, today for for May Day. Right. Yeah. And uh, it, it in in my worldview, the capacity of people to look beyond their their immediate personal needs and see themselves as a part of something larger and more noble than their own lives. And once you get organization and a sense of community for a cause, um, the monopoly man is, is looking at, is looking at, you know, going to a different game board. Right. He's going to, it's going to have to, uh, Check the ashtrays for, for right. cigars, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah, he's going to get a new hat. He's going to get a new Put hat. Put on a hard hat. You know. Well, I started playing drums professionally in the Chicago area when I was nine years old. Wow. And I worked with wow. a little trio. The guy, the head of the, the, the piano player, was probably close to four times my age. <laughs> and there was a clarinet player, and the three of us worked these little tiny gigs in bars mm-hmm. and weddings and bar mitzvahs and whatnot. And when I was about 12, I was playing at some place in Lyle, Illinois, which is a western. Oh, suburb. yeah. <laughs> and there's a blue collar town for you. And, the, and, my, and my dad was there because he, had, he drove me, I couldn't drive. 12 years old so he had to sit there for you know every weekend night listening to this little trio and the union guy came in and took away my right to play unless i joined the union and i I was a kid i didn't know what the hell they were talking about and my father said fine what do we have to do he says well you have to come down you have to be 18 years old oh my dad said, well, he's 12. Right. And I said, well, then he can't work. Oh. And the piano oh, that's player, unfortunate. The piano player said, no, well, this is my drummer. I, I want him here. I was kind of an attraction. Little Jimmy at the drums. I could twirl sticks <laughs> and stuff. And so the union guy told my dad, well, we'll just make, well, he wasn't 18, he was 60. He said, we'll just make sure that he's 16 years old. <laughs> gotcha. So yeah. I went down. Yeah. My dad took me downtown and I had to audition, which meant like I had to do blah, 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 blah. And that was the audition. <laughs> and I got in and they, they gave, they issued me a card saying that I was 16. All right. Oh, that would have impressed the girls at, uh, in, well, <laughs> in middle school. It didn't, it didn't really work in bars because <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Was that the uh, American, American Federation of Musicians? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I, in the union, I joined the, the uh, what they call the chapter, was uh, mm-hmm. Jimmy Petrillo, who was, he was the head of it. And he was one of the most corrupt people in American crime war. No uh, kidding. And, wow. Yeah, and but you know the problem with the musicians union is they're not fighting a single employer. They're they're fighting every little right club and restaurant who hires an accordion player or whatever. So there, there's 
they had no they had no strength so mm-hmm. they, they, they got all their money from the musicians yeah that was a very earnest effort to do something like that in washington state about 10 or 12 years ago yeah it's it's a long a long problem but you know if you don't encourage youth you know where where are people like Danny Gatton and Joe Joe Bonamassa going to come from? <laughs> but my grandfather was a he was a structural steel engineer, and he came over to the U.S. from Bohemia in the late eighteen hundreds, and he worked as just a simple steel worker, and he. He built his, he saved his money, saved enough to start a little business. And then he got injured and was mm-hmm. out of commission for about three and a half, four years. And then he went, he started another little company and he unionized his own company because he said, and my dad said, what are you doing? And, and, and he said, well, if I get injured again, these guys will at least have a card where they can go and get a good job. Yeah, that's great. And I have no and, idea what, what that cost my grandfather. Right. But from a Republican point of view, it was not a good business decision. Right. Well, is, isn't that an oxymoron, Republican point of view? Well, well okay. They have one that's so distorted. It's hard to recall what it means. What should uh, Mark? Should we be talking about Starbucks? Any other workplace, for that matter, interested in organizing and who they should talk to? Yeah, and, yeah. So and a little more about the May Day picnic. Yeah. So we'll we'll kind of repeat that because we're getting to the end of our time here. Um, so. Um, and, I, and I have been talking to some former Starbucks workers here in Missoula, uh, oh, just, just to let you know, but uh, any worker from Starbucks or any other workplace for that matter, uh, listening to this, who is interested in organizing, you can find support and practical help by calling or emailing the Western Montana Workers Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. Um, you can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-N-M-T-W-A at gmail.com or by leaving a message at 406-924-3830. That's 406-924-3830. And you mentioned the May Day picnic. Um, Jim sure did. Yeah. And that's groceries matter to a working man. <laughs> that's right. And there's going to be food there. So uh, come, don't, don't be late. Um, so oh, I won't. It, it, and it's going to be held at, um, uh, if people f- so feel moved to come, you're invited uh, to come to the May Day picnic at the Northside Park picnic shelter. That will last from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Veggie and meat items will be grilled there. Participants are asked to bring a potluck dish, plates and utensils, and your own beverages. Um, and the third wave workers of Missoula who work at Black Coffee Roasters ah, will be there great. too. So, um, and I'm going to be there. 
So uh, sounds like you and I shall certainly be there. Great. That sounds good. So, um, well, that's it for our show. Uh, like to thank Jim Liska as always. Um, and all the way over in Livingston, Montana, um, yeah. which is a couple hundred miles from Missoula. Uh, and uh, in Soundman Jim, a good job as always. So, we all do our best. We're building solidarity. That's it. That's it. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Just go to the website at 1055kfgm.org and you can make your contribution there. Everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thank you. Please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. To America first The cradle of the best and of the worst It's here they got the range And the machinery for change And it's here they got the spiritual thirst It's here the family's broken And it's here the lonely say That the heart has got to open In a fundamental way Democracy is coming
but I'm stubborn as those garbage bags of time cannot decay. I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet. Democracy is coming.